How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Welcome to How I Got Here, stories of innovation in travel and transportation. Today we have Robert Alper from Route Happy on the program. Welcome, Robert. Hey, how are you? Pretty good. So uh, we want to talk a little about your history here. So Route Happy was founded in 2010 in Bangkok and has more than 65 customers across the travel industry, including Expedia, Google, Sabre, and United Airlines, to which they provide rich content for over 300 airlines. And I'll let Robert explain exactly what rich content means, uh, but they were also recently acquired by ATP Co., a company I'm sure our listeners probably also would appreciate an explanation of, and what I understand was their first ever acquisition. So congratulations and welcome, Robert. Good to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So we'd like to start off every interview the same way, uh, hence the title of our podcast, and ask you how you got started or how you got here. So I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, okay. So let's see. I was uh, in travel tech about, uh, gosh, 20-ish years ago, starting as the head of airline relations at Site59, then uh, Travelocity about Site59, and Sabre about the rest of Travelocity. So I had almost a decade in the, in the industry, and um, I kept thinking that flight shopping was overly commoditized. It was too much about price and schedule, and that there was no good information that consumers needed when they were shopping for a flight, like how much leg room, how new the plane is, what's included, what isn't included, et cetera. And as an airline geek, I knew how to find this information, but it required me to stay up till you know, two, three in the morning on SeekGuru and airline websites and Flyer Talk and all these different places to triangulate this data. And I thought if someone could just consolidate all of this data and content in one place and get it into flight shopping, this problem would be um, vastly improved for every consumer in the world who shops for flights. And airlines would have the ability to talk about their differentiators Sales channels would have much better information. And so I kept thinking, someone is going to do something about this problem. The GDSs are going to solve it, or Expedia is going to solve it, or you know, airlines will get together and do something. And they kept not doing it. So I um, sort of summoned up all the courage that I could, uh, could muster and uh, quit my job and started Root Happy. Uh, Rob, it's Kev here. Thanks ever so much for joining us on the, the How I Got Here podcast. I mean, it's interesting you say you were half expecting somebody to have done it or to do it. Yeah. Um, why do you think they didn't and you had that kind of um, free run at it? It's such an interesting question, Kevin. So when I first, when I first started telling people what I was going to do, um, most of the people said, oh, that exists, or doesn't that exist already? And then they'd sort of pause and they'd say, oh, yeah, you're right, it, it doesn't exist. Um, there were little pockets of this information, like you could go, you know, just like I said, you could go to SeatGuru and get a little bit, you could go to airline websites and get a little bit, you could go to Flyer Talk and figure it out. I think the reason nobody did it is that it is such a, and I, I don't want to sound arrogant here, but it is such a complex and sort of arduously painful thing to go do to take responsibility for articulating 
what you get or don't get on every flight in the world, like by cabin and by fare. It's, you know, it's really painful. And I don't think any single entity in the industry, like no airline or airline group or no GBS, no big, you know, OTA travel seller, sort of it wasn't an important enough problem for any one of those companies to invest the amount of effort, resources, um, you know, conviction to solve the problem. So it like, it's an industry wide problem that, and I figured the only way this is going to be solved is if an entrepreneur who is sort of, I used to call myself like halfway credible at solving the problem. <laughs> I said, I'm sort of halfway credible. I think it's a real problem. You know, I, I obviously talked to enough, a, a bunch of people like, should I do this? Am I crazy? Should I go take another job? Um, and I just thought, you know, it's like, a crazy, passionate entrepreneur who's sort of going to gamble for, you know, who sort of has nothing to lose. Um, and I'll, I'll explain something on that in one second. Uh, it's, it's like a classic entrepreneur problem. Like just how do you do something that should have existed that nobody else had done? It seems so obvious to me. Um, and, and basically what I decided is that from my own personal perspective, if it didn't work, if it was a total flop, then all I would, I would have had the experience of a lifetime. And I assumed that I would still be employable after. So um, I kind of, I kind of took the risk. Now there had been, people had tried to do little bits and pieces of this in the past and they had failed. Um, So there had been experiences and I, you know, I guess, I guess it was one of those moments in an industry where somebody just had to kind of step up, step forward and, say, I'm going to do this, and I'm really, really going to do this. I had a quick follow-up question. I wanted you to go a little more in-depth about this, the content. So on your website, it has amenities and UTAs and UPAs, and I just, you know, it would be great if you explained a little bit more about how you have thought about that content, how you classify it, and how much of it you are literally, you know, are you taking it off a website, crowdsourcing it, or working with the airlines to get yeah, great question. So, so the question is, what is airline-rich content? So I'll tell you a little, little short story as, as to how we started. Originally, we thought the problem is that there isn't well-structured, um, detailed content that you can integrate into flight shopping results by flight and cabin and fare. So we set about to go do that, and we thought it's impossible to go amass this kind of information. It's just too broad ourselves by researching it or getting airlines to provide it, et cetera. So we said TripAdvisor for flights. We'll build a flight review system. Kevin, you probably remember this. And David, I don't know if you were around then watching us. Um, But we built this major flight review platform where we asked a ton of questions and then we parsed out all these little bits and pieces of of content and and matched them to plane types and and flight timings and airlines and cabins, et cetera. And it was a really interesting and hard project to do. But what we found is that there were some absolute gems of content, and then there were some absolute duds. So, for example, um, a wonderful guy became our number one reviewer, and uh, he may be listening to this, uh, but he was obsessed with coat hooks on planes. And so every single review was about whether the flight had a coat hook in his seat or not. And he would rate the coat hook seats really high and he would rate the coat, you know, the no coat hook seats really low. And we were just looking at this saying, Oh my God, we are, we're doomed. I mean, just, I mean, sorry, sorry, Robert. Yeah. It's an obvious follow-up and um, maybe a flippant one. I mean, what, what airline had the best coat hooks? 
Oh gosh, I don't even, we were so into the existential dilemma of we're screwed <laughs> if we don't figure this out because nobody cares enough about code hooks to build a whole <laughs> business on it. So I can't even answer that question and we probably threw away all the data, but it's a good question, Kevin. Um, but we were scratching our heads that entire time saying, oh my God, what are we going to do about this problem? Because clearly user generated content is 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 was like a good idea at the time but the reality is we've actually got to go david to your question we've got to just go research the data that consumers around the world need so what we did is we hired an intern and we started going to airline websites and looking at every one of their fleet pages and their um you know yeah basically their fleet pages and and on those pages in little bits and pieces they would say what was on those planes and so we started to i mean the reality uh, the sort of sad reality is that the intern did it all on post-it notes so by the end of the summer we had about two thousand or three thousand post-it notes around our office and we we're kind of looking at this and just you know all working so hard and trying to figure everything out and realizing um, we're gonna have to put this into a spreadsheet and then ultimately a database which is obviously what we did so we built a database of subfleets of airlines around the world um, you know subfleet by subfleet what a subfleet is is um, take like a 757-200, but version one, version two, version three. So it's lower than the, even the long air, airline, aircraft uh, model. So 757-200 version one, two, three, four, five, in the case of an airline like United, perhaps. Um, and then, so we built this database of subfleets, and then we started populating it with data that we could find from wherever we could find it. It was airline websites, the um, vendors to airlines like Wi-Fi manufacturers, seat manufacturers. We bought the OAG file and we started parsing through the OAG is the global flights, one of the global flight schedule providers. And the data file has all sorts of bits of information in it, but very few companies probably, I don't think anybody has gone as far into the OAG flight um, file to just, understand every single piece of information in there and there were little clues to um you know um like how many seats were on a plane and then by knowing that we could figure out which version it was and because we knew um what was on each version we then could match it to the global flight schedule i hope this is making sense and ultimately basically come up with a enriched global flight schedule that had all of these amenities that was where we where we started um, then and I, i'll be brief on this we expanded into a new content type that was that's called amenities what i just said then we decided that there needed to be even richer content so we started thinking about how can we build uh, a content type with photos and videos and cabin tours and probably a little known fact but we actually started doing banner ads that were very targeted on OTAs. And it would say like, if you searched for London to um, New York, it would say Delta offers these amenities on this route. So it was all targeted to what people were searching. Airlines loved what we were doing. We were helping them solve this big differentiation problem and you know, moving away from commoditization to differentiation and helping them talk about the products and services they were offering. Uh, and consumers liked it because they were getting some good information. And then the airlines came back to us and said, okay, 
we need to, um, we wanna do this again, but you're making it too hard for us to provide all the photos. So we had another inflection point where we said, we should not be a media company, we should go be a data company and let the Sojourns and Adaras and intent medias of the world do you know, travel, travel advertising and media. So at that moment, we had this big epiphany and we started building something called the Root Happy Hub, which was like one airline specific content management system for product attributes for flights. And so we started building that out and then we created a, a new content type after amenities called UPAs, Universal Product Attributes. That's a content type that has pictures and videos and cabin tours and graphics and captions and things like that. Then to get to the end of this, there's, then we started thinking about fares and all of the new kinds of fares that were emerging, like basic economy, and you know, you get a bag, you don't get a bag, you get a boarding, uh, you get a seat assignment, you don't get a seat assignment. And we thought, um, our system can create a content type for that, uh, but it's territory that others we thought were, were really occupying, like the GDSs, Sabre Amadeus Travelport, and maybe ATPCO, which ultimately ended up buying us. And uh, little by little, though, we got this feedback from the market that we should go down that path to create structured data on what you get or don't get by fare. And so we went down that path as well. And that one, uh, that content type is called UTAs, Universal Ticket Attributes. So it's like the, the checks and Xs in grids that you see on airline websites and on OTAs. All super fascinating. Um, yes. It's funny. What I I remember, I don't know, it was five years ago when I first heard about uh, you guys launching the company. My initial gut reaction was, uh, this sounds like a feature, not a company. And there's no way they can start an entire company around this. Basically, do we have more legroom or not? And I I think you you answered the question how it's you know a full company, not a feature. This is incredibly complex. But um, you know, serious props on on uh, being able to assemble all that data. Wait, David, I just have to tell you, you and so many other people, VCs, my mom, you know, like all these people said, it's a feature, maybe Kevin back in the day, I don't know, Kevin, if you said that, but, you know, all these people said, it's a feature, not a company. What do you do? Like, it's, yeah, it's a cute little feature. And I just kept saying, I don't, it's so complicated. There is so much to this and there's so much value to unlock. Um, so not only did I get that feedback, but the very beginning in 2010, I was offered a job with Agoda that I was not expecting at all. And Agoda, Priceline had just bought Agoda. They were based in Bangkok. And I loved the Agoda people. And for a little while, maybe a split second, I thought, well, maybe I'll go take the Agoda, the big job at Agoda, and then I'll do Root Happy as a nights and weekends project. Because all these people are saying it's a feature, not a company. Oh man, like I, nine years of just climbing Mount Everest. That's what it's been like. This thing is, is, is a, it's big because it's, it's so complicated in the, and the universe of airlines and, and channel sales channels and technology providers, it's all so complex and it's changing and someone needs to just step up and take responsibility for it all. So I can attest to the fact that it's a company, not a feature. You know, Robert, us journalists aren't really allowed to have an opinion on things. So, you know, I, I can't recall whether I ever said <laughs> it was a, a, just a feature, not a product. I mean, interesting, you, you made reference there to the, uh, the the capital of Thailand there. I mean, that's where you were uh, officially born as a business. I mean, 
most startups, I think, in our space usually say the Valley or New York or Berlin or London or something like that or Tel Aviv or something. Uh, yeah. Bangkok, I mean, how would, give us a little kind of an overview of what it was like creating a new business base there rather than arguably one of the more higher profile uh, startup friendly cities around the world. Yes, yeah, good, good question. So, you know, I started a little later. Um, I was not in my 20s or even close to that when I started this. And I will talk about Root Happy as a grown-up startup in a few minutes. But I, uh, you know, after almost a decade with um, Site 59 Travel Aussie Sabre, I quit my job. I went to Asia for the year and I was just, you know, going to do market research and figure out what company I wanted to start. I did decide very clearly I wanted to, to start a company. Um, wasn't even necessarily in the travel space originally, but then I got kind of smart, I think, and decided to do something in a space that I knew something about. So I'm in Bangkok. I decided that this was the idea that I wanted to do. I had been thinking about this, you know, for many of the years that I had been within Travelocity. I thought there's just this big problem that I don't, I don't get why people aren't, you know, being more anxious about this. And I, I thought it was a real problem. So um, I bought the domain name in the middle of 2010 in, and I was in Bangkok. I started looking for developers and designers. I got involved in the tech community there. Um, I realized that I wasn't gonna raise money there. So I started spending uh, quite a bit of time in Singapore and started talking to venture firms, et cetera. So it was, it, it really was like a Southeast Asia thing at the very beginning. But I, 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 I started hiring people and I slowly but surely realized that this idea was bigger than I even imagined and was harder and that I needed to find people who really understood the space and where I could have access to capital the way I needed it and that I had the, you know, the credibility uh, behind me. So after about six-ish months of trying in, uh, in Southeast Asia, I, I, you know, despite the fact that I had this fantasy of living in Southeast Asia and having a really wonderful lifestyle and, you know, launching this amazing company, frankly, I got, I got smart. I, I watched The Social Network the night before I left Bangkok. I was sort of shaking when I saw that movie because I just thought this seems like a real intense journey I'm about to go on. But I got on a plane the next day. I came to New York in, uh, at the end of January 2011. And, I, and that's when it really started to get serious. Um, Actually, Robert, it's an interesting point. Sorry for uh, interrupting you in full flow there. Do you, do you think, given that you said that you had been thinking about this problem when you were at Travelocity and you were starting to understand the scale of how big the problem is, but how, I guess, how big the opportunity was if you solved it, do you sense if you'd stayed at Travelocity and gained some influence within the business, you may have persuaded the powers that be at that point to have supported you to develop it within that business? Not a chance. Really? And because, I, I mean, it was part of Sabre by then, and Sabre arguably could have built something like this. Yeah, I don't, not, not a chance is my, is my view now, Kevin. And the reason, I don't think, I, I really had to reflect on this, because at the beginning of Root Happy, I had conversations with incredibly smart um, people at very large companies, and they all have the they all would have had the um, capital and the resources to do this. But the problem is that it's like, it's a problem that needs to be solved by the industry. 
And so one company cannot solve this problem. You know, it, A, it's not the core business of any one of these companies. So it wasn't, the, it wasn't core, it wouldn't have been core enough to travel out to do your saver to solve this problem, you know, for the whole industry. They might've tried to solve it for themselves, but then you get into the problem where airlines want one solution. They don't want to put their content in multiple places. So it's this, you know, huge impediment to doing this as one company. Then on top of that, once you take responsibility for it, you can never, ever stop taking responsibility for it. So you can't have the, you know, young whippersnapper at Travelocity who started this thing and then they leave. Like, what are you going to do? You have to have a whole team and department to keep this thing going. And then the powers that be at Travelocity Saber would say, well, why are we doing this on behalf of, you know, why are we creating content that's going to, yeah. Uh, you know, help make our competitors successful. So we're just going to keep it for ourselves. But then the airlines would say, but we don't like that because we want to put our content in one place. So it was like this inherent, once I figured that out, I think I was convinced that, that Root Happy had a chance of being successful because, you know, to, to the earlier question of, you know, it's just why I thought nobody else is going to touch this thing with a 10 foot pole because it's so complicated and kind of, so sort of ugly to to manage all this data and you know and um and bring it all together so i did think you know a lot of investors and others said why are you dealing with the airline industry just do hotel you know like which is where the money is and i said that's exactly why i'm doing air because no i don't think anyone i think we're going to get a huge head start and be able to accomplish this and i know that there is a lot of value to unlock in air i've i had made money in air before on the air side of the business. And I thought, let, you know, 95% of other entrepreneurs go, go to hotel and more power to them. Cause it's a, you know, it's a great industry and there's lots of problems to solve there, but the airline industry needed this. So, you know, I saw the opportunity and, yeah. and took it. And quick follow-up on that. So you talked, you elaborated here, you started to elaborate on um, working with those airlines and what they wanted. We've spoken with Paulina from Wanderoo and Aaron from Silver Rail. And um, a lot of what we talked about was like, how do you solve the supply problem? How do you about go about with the regional strategy getting, you know, in their case, bus and rail separately um, to play ball in, in ways that they previously haven't. And you said um, they wanted to have one you know, source of content. And I, I, I'm curious if you could tell us more about number one, you were a startup. And so I imagine part of uh, the pushback was, you know, even if it's not some kid at Travelocity who might not be there, you also could be a startup that might not be there in a year. But then how did you think about this, you know, working with these airlines? Um, did you go regionally, strategically, the biggest ones? I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Such a good question. Okay, so number one, I made the comment about Root Happy being a grown-up startup. I think I started Root Happy when I was 41 or 42. And I, I'll just deviate for a second and then go right back to your question. Uh, I started looking for money and, uh, or like you know, after several months, I raised a friends and family round first. But um, when I started raising money, I got this real intense you're not 25. There was a time, I don't think it exists anymore. I think we've all gotten, we've sort of, the industry has just grown up like the startup ecosystem. But there was, when we were starting Root Happy in 2011, it was very much like if you weren't 25 and in the Valley, you just were like not worth talking to basically. So I, I could get the meetings, but, but you know, it was pretty tough. Like I'd have a 28 year old sitting on the other side of the table telling me it was a stupid idea or they'd say it's a good idea, but you know, airlines, there's no money in air, so you're not going to make any money and stuff like that. And I would just basically, 
what, what I knew from being in the industry, and this ties to your question, is that I had a few gray hairs, more now, um, and I knew the problems you know, very well. Like I had been working with airlines, I'd been working with GDSs, I'd been working with sales channels. And so one of the ways to alleviate the how on earth can a startup enter an airline office and convince them that we should do this just gargantuan project is that it was a, a very organic, authentic, you know, we as an industry need to solve this. And I've left a big company. So I've been in, you know, I've been in your shoes kind of thing. And this is exactly, you know, what we're doing now today. What do you think? It was a ton of uh, listening and adapting meetings, I would say. Um, we'd go in, you know, first, luckily, because I was in the industry, I was able to, you know, get, get meetings. And I started wherever I possibly could. I mean, I didn't start at the right level. I started with the people that I knew from, you know, Site 59 Travelocity, and then they would, you know, they would think it was interesting, and then they would introduce me to somebody, and they would introduce me to somebody, and then finally I'd kind of climb up and get to the, the, the right level. Um, and so two, two specific answers to your question. One is it was like um, constantly being on the road, traveling all over the world to essentially socialize the idea, ask if people thought it was a good idea, uh, tell them where, what we had done and what we had accomplished, um, being very transparent about, you know, kind of where we were with airlines and where we were with sales channels, essentially telling everybody, you know, this is, a, this is a chicken and egg problem. And that, you know, if you airline X or you GDSY or you sales channel Z want to solve this problem, then everyone has to jump in and do it because if you all wait for the other side to do it, it's not going to happen. But clearly, you know, you don't just say that and people jump in. You, you sort of have to build stuff and then people need to find value from that and take some chances and all that. In terms of regional versus um, uh, like headquarters slash global, we did do a fair amount of talking to regional offices in the beginning because uh, they were sort of easier to get to. But then we, we realized that the power, this decision was only going to be made at headquarters. And we had to find the right person or people within the airline, within the GDS, that would, you know, actually get the problem we were trying to solve, want to solve it, you know, want to build a relationship with us. So there was, uh, I was on a plane. We, there were a bunch of us who were on planes just all the time. Um, in the beginning, and and one, this is a, a this is a total secret, and I can't believe I'm about to reveal it, but I'm going to. No, please go so, ahead. <laughs> okay, I know you you want juicy stuff, so this is good. So, I would say, um, in order to get meetings with people who don't know or trust you know you yet, um, when you're not established, it's really hard to get people to um, meet with you from like another city or another country, because if they feel the responsibility that you're going to fly all the way halfway around the world to meet with them and then you know, their kid gets sick and they can't be there, it's really a problem. So I realized that because I was not getting meetings that I needed. They said they love the idea like by email or phone, but you, you got to talk to people in person. So I adopted a strategy of telling people I was going to be in their city to see what happened. And oh my God, it, it worked perfectly. 
<laughs> if you yeah. happen to be in London on Wednesday, people will meet with you. But if you say, will you schedule a meeting with me in two weeks? They'll say no. So. Hmm. Very interesting. <laughs> that's, the tip of, that's the tip of the century. Yeah. I don't get in trouble. Um, I wanted to quickly follow up there. So, I mean, you mentioned something, no money in air, which obviously is something that everyone in the industry has heard of um, in that they don't really pay commissions for anyone who's new. Um, but we had an interesting inter uh, interview with, uh, with Aaron from Silver Rail, and he was talking about how pretty much many of the rail guys don't pay for any distribution either. And you can you could say that quote unquote, there's no money in rail, but he, you know, they focused on rail IT and that was a different budget internally. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I feel like I'm, maybe I'm interpreting this wrong, but that's why I wanted to clarify. Like it's basically what you're saying is, you know, there is money in air. These guys are willing to pay. They're just, they're not willing to pay for distribution to the OTAs, which is traditionally how people think about it. They are willing to pay for other services in IT and you are more in that budget. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think that's an, an element of what I was saying. But what I, what I really mean is that, you know, this is a, a major um, market. This is, uh, you know, one of the most, one of the most, uh, one of the largest segments of commerce is, tr is travel. I think of travel may be the biggest and then air is, you know, the biggest. And I think in terms of the, the actual revenue side of it. So it's that what, what my thesis was that, there was, there was value to be unlocked. And if you could help unlock value, what I mean by that is flight shopping was always really commoditized. It was like, you know, it became a race to the bottom. It's all about price. And then OTAs came and made it more about price because it was transparent, you know, shopping. And, and there's a good side to that um, from a consumer side in particular. But the reality is it then caused airlines to like not they didn't have the the tools to be able to differentiate effectively and to tell consumers about why you'd pick my airline versus versus the next lccs when they came in they 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 contributed very much to that that race to the bottom and so it's that if you can figure out how to help airlines and their sales channels actually create value then there's willingness to pay to your point so it's, you know, willingness to pay for IT services, willingness to pay for content that improves conversion, improves upsell, improves customer satisfaction. And so I had, I had had experiences in my career before Root Happy that caused me to see there's actually, you know, there's, there's money here to be made, but it's also there's value to be created. And so the, the big idea of Root Happy was if we can grow the pie for the whole industry, um, and it's like a, a total win-win-win because airlines get a platform and data to be able to sell their differentiators. Travel channels, sales channels get the ability to finally have a content type to improve the shopping experience and, you know, make it more like on Amazon rather than just, you know, here's the flight and schedule and kind of, you know, you, you do the best you can. And then consumers, with, who this is all ultimately for, finally have the ability to have the information they need to make the right decisions for themselves. And, and when you can unlock all of that, you know, there's willingness to pay, which is what, what we found. A very decent segue, I think, we were talking about pay and, you know, the, the, the thorny issue of how you actually make money as a startup. I mean, how did you, given that it was a new type of product and uh, not only you as a business, but the service that you were providing and things like that, how did you establish a pricing structure for the people that you wanted to pay for it? Yeah. Um, 
So we thought, Kevin, that we were going to come in to work. Let's, I'm going to make up a date like March of 2013. We thought we're going to figure out our, our pricing model today. <laughs> oh, were we wrong about that? Um, the business model turned out to be like, you know, almost a decade of figuring out what, how is this going to work? And once, once I realized that, and once we realized that, we went into a different mode, which was at any given moment, we have to have a point of view about how we should charge. And it's gone through lots of different, you know, lots of different uh, iterations. Like there was a moment with airlines that we were convinced it was going to be about PBs, which is passengers boarded. So that's like, the easiest way to differentiate the size of an airline, which is how many passengers they board every year. So you've got the 150 million, you know, airlines and you've got the 20 million airlines. That's an easy, easy way to do it. Um, and we were just dead wrong about that. That's the way that a lot of airline software companies um, uh, price their products, but airlines basically did not want that. Uh, and so it was very much a, sort of, you know, I, I made the comment earlier about listening and adapting. So it was very much a, this is the model. We recognize, you know, very genuinely that this is a new thing in the market and we can't purport to say that we have all the answers yet, but we are bound and determined to solve this problem. So what do you think of the model today? Does this work for you? Does it not work for you? If it doesn't, then how could it? So we were sort of very open you know, in the beginning to just having honest conversations with our prospective customers. And then, but, you know, with the broader purpose of, we need you to help us set the business model so that Root Happy can be an ongoing concern and can keep helping you, you know, solve these problems forever kind of thing. So it was, I, you know, I, I think there are parallels to other industries, but um, this particular one, in my view, required a level of genuineness and sort of, humility about you know what we're trying to solve it also was that we we would tell every airline and gds and, and sales channel in the world and anyone listening who you know i've interacted with over the last 10 years will, will will attest to this i think that it was very much a it takes a village we can't do this ourselves so we will do everything we can possibly do to create the tools and the content that you need to differentiate your products and services but we also then like we needed the we need the airlines to talk to their sales channels and say, oh, you should integrate our rich content from Root Happy. Yeah. And we needed the sales channels to say to the airlines, will you put your rich content with Root Happy and support them so we can get the rich content? It was like this never ending, and it's still we're still in that, and we're not done. Like it's sort of we're this is a twenty five year endeavor, I think, to to get it to you know where I would consider true scale, maybe twenty years. Yeah, tell, um, tell me, it's um just 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 on that, I mean. It would be wonderful if you named some of these airlines, but did you have did you have any at the beginning who just kind of kind of rubbed their chins and scowled a little bit and said, we just can't see the value in this, who then perhaps a few years down the line with their tails wagging between their legs, legs sorrowfully said, yeah, okay, we need to have this. Oh, that was such a good question. Okay. Um, It'd be wonderful yes. if you said if you named one or two. Yeah. Okay. Let me see <laughs> what I feel comfortable doing. I know you want, you want good content. Um, <laughs> we want heads. Make heads roll. <laughs> so, I mean, everybody's great in this industry and I'm not dissing anyone. Um, you know, there were, so 
we had some earlier adopters that were were sort of very engaged with us, you know, early on and, and helped us shape and form this. Um, and I'd say United and Qantas were in that that camp. Um, then we had some maybe middle kind of, you know, sort of a little bit curious what we're doing. Um, I'd say uh, probably um, American is in that camp um, and uh, maybe um, maybe A. And then there were ones that we, so, so nobody to your question, Kevin, no one, like I think nobody said this is a terrible idea. Um, other than, you know, investors and some family members and people who didn't get <laughs> it. Um, but from the industry side, it was like, oh, this is a terrific idea, but you're not going to be able to, you know, if anything, it was you're not going to be able to pull it off. But there were airlines, like I'd say um, Delta came a little bit later. You know, we were fully engaged with them, but there was there are thoughts along the way about, you know, we can do things ourselves. Um, and, you know, and, and I think Air France was in this, in this Air France KLM was in this camp a little bit, you know, we can do these things by ourselves. We don't necessarily, we're not sure we need you, but we're, we want to keep in touch on these things. And we were very philosophical about this. We just said, you know, the reality is that airlines and sales channels have to, and GDSs have to do this when they're ready. Um, they can't, we can't force this issue. We got to do the best work we can possibly do. You know, I'll, I'll do on the GDS side. Sabre has been with us, you know, very actively for years and Amadeus has been more in toe dip mode. Um, things are changing across the board though. At this point, we can talk about, you know, root happy under ATPCO. Um, but there definitely has been an evolution and, um, you know, companies sort of recognizing that, they either wanted to, you know, be an early adopter or they sort of maybe tried some things themselves and then eventually came back and said, well, we think we can, you know, we think actually we do need you and we're going to plug you in here. Uh, so, you know, we, we've been friends with everybody from the beginning, I would say, let's put it that way. Like no, nobody who ever said we don't need you, we were never, never mad at them or mean to them. We just said, <laughs> okay, take your time. We're never going to go away. We're going to keep bugging you. So as long as you take our calls and our emails, you know, we'll, we'll just be here and then we'll do this for you. So, so process, process, by process of elimination, those that aren't customers now are those that perhaps have dug their heels in. The, uh, you know... I, I don't, I think my, my prediction, uh, you know, nobody has a perfect crystal ball. Um, I think it's just a matter of time. I think we're doing something. We're doing an industry utility function that the entire industry needs. And little by little, we keep making our products and content and services better. And then airlines are also, you know, airlines and sales channels are maturing. So there's also a, an element of in any given market, there's going to be companies that are sort of, you know, leaders on ideas and there's going to be ones that, you know, do it in the next phase and there are ones that do it later. And so I just think it's a matter of an entire industry transforming and everybody sort of eventually has to get there. Now, that isn't to say that, you know, every single sales channel and airline in the world will will work with we're happy and ATP on, on rich content. But I, I kind of think it's going to be pretty close is, is my prediction. Um, we've played our cards right. We, we, we've priced right. We, we've built the right products. You know, we're solving a utility, utility problem for, for the whole industry. So 
You'll see, you'll see a lot more announcements coming out. I want to, you've mentioned ATP code now a couple of times and uh, I want to segue the, the conversation into how you've managed that transition. Um, first of all, I think it would be great if you could kind of uh, start with an explanation of uh, who is ATP Co. Um, but uh, I also think, you know, if, if I was your investor and you told me that they were your most likely buyer, someone who had never acquired a tech company before, I would have definitely raised an eyebrow. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I know me and you spoke about this about eight months ago, about how you were able to build that relationship over time. And um, so, I, you know, yeah, like, again, just, you know, start with an explanation maybe of who they are, but it would also be great to understand how you built the relationship and um, how you got them to make their first ever acquisition. Yeah. So, okay, ATPCO is uh, stands for the airline tariff publishing company uh people in revenue management at airlines and some people in you know some people in the gds and and sales channels would know them it's essentially an airline owned utility where um, most airlines of the world file their airfares and their fare related data like fare rules there's many other things that atpco does I didn't know the half of it before, you know, they acquired us and I really started getting involved in ATP Go. But imagine just, you know, this one industry utility that airlines around the world created 53 years ago, essentially, there's a little more to it, um, where, you know, all of the airfare of the world is, is stored and fare rules and then the GDSs and some large sales channels pull this raw data directly from ATP Go and from which they construct fares and itineraries. That, that we all shop for as consumers. So um, to me, uh, several years ago, we started getting questions from everybody. What's your relationship with ATPCO? Are you doing this with ATPCO? Because we were called originally um, by many people, the ATPCO, like we'd explain what we're doing and they'd say, oh, this is like the ATPCO of rich content. And we were both flattered by that because it meant that they sort of got it like one single place for an airline to store all of their rich content to then disseminate to any and all of their sales channels, you know, direct and indirect and, and all that. And uh, it also scared us because we thought, how on earth is this startup going to turn ourselves into an industry owned utility? Like it's that leap seemed very, very hard, and, you know, far away and daunting also atpco is it's it's like i initially thought it was like the irs of the industry um internal revenue service for those who are not familiar with that term um but uh it's it's a bit it's a bit of that but it's also like the mit of the airline industry like it's people who have been in the industry for years and years and understand just the most complex and unsexy problems. And I had always thought that Root Happy was quite an unsexy business solving a really hard problem. Um, ATPCO, you know, certainly in that category. So uh, we were, we're sort of scared of them, but kind of intrigued by them. So several, several years ago, I, we, I decided it's, we have had enough questions about ATPCO that we have to go investigate. So uh, I asked someone on my team to go look into it and they did a, a kind of a report on ATPCO and it was just so daunting and so complicated that we, we, we kind of said, well, we can't deal with this right now. Like we don't, we don't even know where we'd start. Then 
you know, when, when something is meant to be, it, it, my view is that it, it comes back, like, you know, things come back and you have to deal with them. So maybe a couple of years later, it, it came back again. And then I, I started to take it seriously myself. And I started to reach out to ATPCO uh, saying, I, I really think we should talk. Now, quite a bit of hubris for I'm still just at this point, you know, an entrepreneur trying to do something sort of too big for a startup, um, frankly, in some sense. Um, but, you know, we, we had had enough traction with airlines. Google Expedia were our customers. And I think at that point, United American, ANA, Qantas, you know, just we had had a number of, of big Sabre, uh, a number of big customers at that point. And so I had a one-hour call with a marketing person at ATPCO. And I was trying to explain what we do, or I explained what we do. The call went very well. And, uh, and she said, I want to introduce you to some other people. And I was just, you know, elated because in this industry, as, as you guys know, in this industry, just getting a meeting with one of these companies is, is half the battle. Like I'd, earlier on in, in Root Happy's history, when I'd say, I got a meeting with American Airlines, isn't that great? And it's only taken me six months and the meeting is happening in two months. Look <laughs> at us. My board would look at me like, you have got to be kidding. That, you know, the ones who didn't know the travel industry, the people on the board who knew the travel industry, you know, rock on, Bob, like, this is incredible. And then the other ones who didn't know the industry were just like, you've got to be kidding. It takes you eight months to get a meeting with one of these companies. Um, so uh, we, we had a series, we, we ended up having follow-up meetings. A, a funny story here is that, um, again, this is a, another one of these little secret things. I, um, I knew that I had to get an in-person meeting with ATPCO because if I did another call that went more into detail on the phone, I just thought I'm going to lose them. Like it's too complicated. We, we have really like earnestly gone in and built stuff that the industry needs, but ATPCO won't understand that just by a phone call. And so I, I need to beg them basically to meet me in person. So funny story is they told me they wanted another phone call and I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I did it. I said, I have to come see you in person. And they said, no, we don't want to do that. We only want to do a phone call. And I said, well, then I'll wait until you're ready to meet me in person. I kind of couldn't believe that I was doing it because, you know, at, as a startup, you, you sort of have to put yourself out there. You know, you, you take meetings whenever you can get them. Yeah. Uh, they finally, I think three months later, they said, okay, we'll meet you in person. And I said, great. And we ended up having just a fantastic three hour meeting. I think we both were surprised by how many connection points there were and sort of laughed a little bit about the, the hubris of, you know, not, not taking the phone, the phone meeting, but you know, sometimes you gotta, you gotta do what your gut says or maybe most of the time actually. It's, it's just done that, Rob. I mean, it's, you said, uh, you know, you realized how many things you had in common and, and it was an obvious relationship that needed to happen almost, but you know, you were ATP Co's first acquisition. You're a, still fairly young startup where well, I'm assuming start a startup culture almost. Yeah. How, how did you go about kind of thinking about integrating the two cultures of the two businesses, given that they arguably are perhaps rather different? 
Yeah. Uh, so, so to David's question earlier, when I brought up that we were talking to Atypico and getting more and more serious with them, you know, Atypico has been on a path to reinvent itself with dynamic pricing and NDC and, you know, um, and, and retailing, which we knew they had, they had started to, to tow dip themselves. You know, David, to your comment, yes, the board said, don't touch this thing with a 10-foot pole. Like, no way that an industry utility owned by airlines has never done an acquisition in 53 years is going to acquire this company, focus on the, you know, the commercial entities. So uh, that was definitely there, and I had to kind of stand up to the board and say, no, I really think there's something here. We're, we're going to keep talking to them, because even if it ends up just being a commercial relationship, this is there's definitely something here. And then, Kevin, to, to yours, um, it was kind of like it was like sort of a magical thing was happening when we started to meet with them. It was, it was almost like a parent child thing where we were doing the same thing that they were doing. It was a different domain. Theirs was pricing, you know, fares and fare related data and, and starting to develop, you know, new modern aspects of those things. And we were doing all of this rich content. If you think about the problem of flight shopping, it's these two things need to go together. So it's pricing and, you know, what an airline offers in their products and services and how, you know, the, the amenities and what you get and don't get and the pictures and all that. You put them together and you actually have the full story. So completely different companies. You're right. Like we were, you know, 100% um, on Google Apps and, you know, unlimited vacation, you know, and... Just the you know all of the modern things in startups and, and ATPCO is an established large-ish entity um, you know so so very very different but there was this common common purpose that was so strong and we'd we'd say like well we built a tool like the UPA hub that has all these content restrictions because airlines have been telling us they need to have on off switches by channel because that's, you know, it's their content and they want to decide where to distribute it. And Atypico would say, well, that's exactly how it works with, uh, you know, fares. We have the same exact thing. So in completely unbeknownst to both of us, because we both were trying to solve, you know, solving the same, uh, a similar problem, like two sides of the same coin, we we realized that we just had we we understood each other and we were kind of two peas in a pod other than maybe cultural stuff so what what we when we ultimately came together we realized substantively this marriage makes all the sense in the world um we get each other we speak each other's same language even though you know neither of us knew that going into it and kind of almost found it a little hard to believe i remember the first atpico meeting there's, there's a wonderful woman at Atypica who I, who will, if she ever listens to this, will know who I'm talking about. Um, she was looking at me like with the most skeptical eyes I think anybody has ever looked at me at with for three hours. And, you know, after we got through that meeting, I, I saw her, you know, a month later and I said, I said, you know, you were just, I was so scared of you in that meeting. And she said, I just could not. I didn't know what to make of you. Like, I didn't know, could I believe you and trust you because you were saying all the right things and just, you know, kind of, it, it was sort of, I think, a, a, meant, a meant to be thing. But what we realized when we came together is that um, what we, what made sense here, Atypico trying to modernize and, you know, enter the next generation of flight shopping, support the whole industry with all the new stuff that the industry needs. Um, 
and and root happy having solved and on its way to solving a lot of the you know some of the modern differentiation and flight shopping problems and that we could put these two things together and get the best of both worlds so we've got the how do you actually you know create a globally recognized standardized content type for the entire global flight shopping ecosystem i mean root happy could not do that on its own um, we got part of the way, but you know, there's all sorts of things at ATP Go, like working groups and milestones and um, data application, which is the official sanctioned way that you know that GDSs in, input integrate the data and sales channels integrate the data with the root happy modern culture and processes, et cetera. And so I, you know, I, I don't know if everyone would know this, but um, I have become EVP of retailing at ATPCO to integrate Root Happy and infuse retailing into the DNA of ATPCO. Root Happy's head of uh, uh, chief commercial officer has become ATPCO's chief commercial officer. Root Happy's head of product has become ATPCO's head of product. Our head of corporate communications has become um, ATPCO's head of corporate communication. So we've sort of put the best of these worlds together and, and Root Happy benefits in so many ways by understanding how, you know, how does the industry really do this at scale, um, you know, forever kind of thing in a, in a proper way where you, you have all the checks and balances and standards and things like that. And then ATPCO benefits from all this new blood that has come in and new ideas and kind of, you know, some new ways of doing things that they weren't accustomed to. So it's pretty, it's been fascinating and, and good. You know, we're, we're kind of, we're modern at, we're building a, a new ATP go. Okay. I've got a, a quick one. We're going to have to wrap up because we're conscious of everyone's time. And you might just tell me to shut up and go away, Robert, but tell me <laughs> if ATP go hadn't have bought you, who do you think would have? Oh, <laughs> well, it's, we the wrap probably, up. it's the wrap-up question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, we would have gone public for, you know, $10 billion IPO. <laughs> but, um, no, I don't think we would have gone public. Uh, we definitely would have been acquired. So um, I really do, can't say, but um, I think the listeners out there can kind of, like, the, yeah. you know, there was quite a bit of interest, and we did have multiple offers, and it was the kinds of companies that, that you can imagine all great. And I think we could have had a, you know, a great future with them, but I, I have to say the right thing happened because you have to say all, the right thing happened. <laughs> well, and, and, but you know, I have to say, but it really did because there's only one ATP go and there's only one root happy and everybody, it's a weird position to be in. I have to say like, we like everybody, we're friends with everybody. Um, and we, we serve every airline, every sales channel, every technology provider. So it's kind of, you know, the, the best outcome happened for, for the industry and, and certainly for, for Root Happy. <laughs> I'm in tears here. I'm in tears. I really am. <laughs> I I'm like sure you are. <laughs> oh, well, great. Well, thank you so much, Robert. I, Kevin and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And um, I think that is a wrap for today. This has been How I Got Here. Uh, your stories of travel and transportation innovation. Uh, thank you very much and see you next time. Thank you. No problem. Thanks a lot, Robert. Talk to you. Bye. Thanks for listening to How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.